of the church from the Apostles' Creed that I believe in the Holy uh, Catholic Church. And in uh, an example of that, I, I gave of an experience of our family experiencing the Catholicity um, of the church in most recent times is through doing uh, various pulpit fill supply for different bodies in need in the area. Um, and Sunday evening services, I've done uh, a number of them now uh, for different churches in the area that don't have supply for their evening service. Uh, we have done that as a family. And I mention that uh, to you just because that's where Pastor Dan is. Um, Anna is not, as far as I know, having her baby. Uh, it, it, that's not where they are. Um, uh, Pastor Dan is doing some pulpit supply for a church in need this morning as well. So that's been a blessing for us to be able to do and to be a part um, uh, of blessing other congregations when in need. It's, it's strengthened and encouraged our fellowship with a number of folks uh, and uh, uh, spoke uh, of relations between their assembly and ours. So uh, that's where Pastor Dan is this morning. As we move forward in the Cain and Abel story, as we've spoken uh, at length about Cain as an individual, we will progress this morning into uh, the latter portion of the text that were read. But I, I, I want to r recall with you, because there's an intensification now when we move into the text this morning, there's going to be an intensification of the sin of mankind. It's going to intensify. From what we know so far in the origins of the world, we know that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, right? So we have that scenario there. And, and so one sinful event... Um, and, and then I'm sure many others, uh, due to their having been fallen now, I'm sure they, like us, are handicapped by many sins uh, of slighter significance than murder, but uh, as far as external murder, but still the internal hatred or uh, anger towards one's neighbor. Uh, the, the, the family is developing by now. At, at this point in the text, uh, without getting too kind of weird about it, um, uh, our small group kind of got a little bit weird about it earlier this week, but uh, kind of discussing how many people are probably here uh, in the narrative and how did they get here exactly. Uh, not exactly sure, but you realize at the end of this text, of which we will get to next week, um, uh, Cain is sent away, and as I mentioned, uh, sent away with a wife. Uh, that wife, uh, very likely, uh, given, again, if you, if you take this creational account with this sense of integral uh, or integrity with it, that there is this, um, uh, we know what actually occurred, not just simply a part of what occurred that is for us to know. But we know what took place, that there was Adam and there was Eve, and then there was children from them. And so when Cain is kicked out and he heads eastward, he is given a wife, uh, very likely then his sister at this point. So I say all that to say there's a family here. And I spoke of that earlier at the sacrificial scene of public worship. They were bringing sacrifices. Cain was bringing. Abel was bringing. And it wasn't a private thing where, where, where Abel just did it, uh, you know, somewhere near the sheep. And Cain did it somewhere up over the hill in a field that he cultivated. It was a, a public uh, liturgical worship. Uh, mom and dad were there, uh, uh, of who, uh, from whom Cain and Abel would have learned sacrifice in the first place. Um, and then what we then read between the lines is there were siblings there as well, which um, uh, could have been uh, 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 males, uh, and we know of Cain and Abel because of the significance of the peace between the intensification of sin and Cain and Abel, or we know for sure, because again, Cain is sent away with one, we know there were sisters um, there in the family unit. 
How many were not sure? Again, we were just not sure. There is a woman available to go with Cain. Um, and it, 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 without making light of it, it speaks rather deeply about the consequences of sin. That, that, and, and, and we can frame it a little bit differently, um, but, but uh, ours might not be as catastrophic to a neighbor, the consequences of our own sin. But uh, we must remember, if we come way back from a young lady being sent off with Cain, in a, in a terrible place, in a terrible trajectory, our own sins are never private, as though they were committed on an island. But, but they have ramifications for those around us. Keep that in mind, men, in your home, as I keep in mind, as I say it to me as well, that keep in mind the, the sowing of habits and, and the character that necessarily you will reap from the sowing of those habits. They won't just affect you. They will affect your whole home. We must be mindful of that. By a re rehearsal of the Cain incident to this point before we get to the intensification of his sin and the intensification of the curse that meets it, remember that Cain as a character so far hypocritically brought sacrifice to the Lord. That's where we're at at this point with Cain. Remember, he hypocritically brought sacrifice uh, to the Lord at stated time of worship. Uh, God probes the heart or confronts Cain. And remember, uh, he gives them the issue of if you uh, do right, will you not be accepted? In other words, he probes with Cain this lack of sincerity in faith. We speak about this as well with the church of Christ now. Is your faith, is my faith, trying to keep reputations intact within the society that we find ourselves? Or is it integral? who we are as people. That's the issue with Cain. He lives by a consensus morality. This is what's got to be done in order for me to coexist well with the community I find myself. Lest I be thought of something less in their eyes and perhaps even be vanquished. If I, I belong to this group and the moral temperature in the room is this, I must, at least while with them, be that. That was Cain's mode of operating, and God called him on it. So then when Cain was hypocritically bringing sacrifice, going through the liturgical motions in order for his reputation to be uh, held intact, he was directly confronted and told of the promise. Cain, remember I just mentioned to you just a moment ago, if you do well, will you not be accepted? The answer to that is obviously yes. Cain knows that. Not only was he called to repentance and offered the promise of renewal, he was also warned, as you are in these moments of Lord's Day worship, hearing the preached word, he is also reminded that any hearing of the word of promise requires action. He is told there will be an impending disaster if you act on the rage that is stirring within you. There is consequences to actions. There are consequences to hearing the word of the Lord. You gather this Lord's Day in the preaching of the public word, and there are consequences to you in your life for that. Not between you and I, 
between you and the Lord. Thirdly, then, Cain hears this word of promise and this word of restoration and this word of impending disaster. Don't, you, 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 well, just let me point it out to you in the text in case you're, you're lost on this idea and you weren't with us so far. Further up in the text, verse 7, if you do well, that is like your brother Abel who acted in faith. If you were to act like him, will you not be accepted? Will you, will you not be washed, rinsed, cleansed, received? And the answer to that is yes. And if you do not, I'm warning you of impending disaster. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, Cain, but you must exercise self-control. Finally, if you look at verse 8, we're, again, we're looking at the depth of Cain's wickedness. He knows to do right, and he doesn't do it. He hardens his heart and goes through the door of verse 7. Sin is at the door. Don't open it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. So look at the information that Cain has aware. Cain has um, been made aware of. Don't open that door. Sin is crouching at the door. You need to, you, you, you need to exercise self-control over this rage. If you do right, you will be accepted. Consider and weigh carefully your next steps. But it falls on deaf ears. Cain goes and speaks to Abel. And you can kind of just guess, what do we know of Abel in this scenario? We know very little. Other than he was, you know, second best at being born. He was not the man that they were all hoping in. And, and think about the human tragedy of these events to, Cain, uh, to Adam and Eve. We'll speak about it a little bit next week. Or how brutal it is on a mom and dad that a, that a son would kill another one. And, and, uh, and not just a son, but the son that they hoped in turned out to be a murderer. And what we then know of Abel is either uh, that he is simply a man of faith is what we know of him. That's it. We know that he was kind of, oh yeah, then there was Abel, his brother. Go tend to the sheep. And then here is the one brother. Knowing of what's going on, he approaches Abel. You can guess what the conversation was like. Right? Cain is like, hey, I could use a hand out here in the field. No, 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 not that one, not that one. This one over here. Just think about the exchange. He entreated Abel to come. And Abel, why would we expect anything other than Abel to go? We only know of him that he is a faithful individual. I don't know what their relationship is exactly like, but we just know that the portrait of Abel is one that we must embrace, and that is he's a man of faith. And so we would assume that entreated by his brother to go with him, to give him a hand, or to meet him any which place, he would have done so without any sense that there was impending danger. Look at the deceit, the premeditation, we call it, taking place with Cain. So he entreats Abel to go with him, and Abel has no sense of impending danger. And we are told of no sense of struggle or Abel's attempt to flee. 
So what are we left to guess about the text or to read into the scenario is that Cain simply murdered him. And look at the text as it says, uh, when they were in the field, as he entreated Abel to come with him, uh, Cain rose up against him and killed him. It was rather swift. We have no sense that Abel ran or a sense of a struggle broke out, so we are left with the sense that Cain just clobbered him when he was completely unaware. And then to cover over his tracks, he consequently buries the body to hide the evidence of the crime. Um, We know that because of the Lord's inquiry that we're about to look at next. In other words, Cain is completely ready to know the warnings, to know the issue, to know that sin is crouching at the door, to hear the word of warning, to not give in to his internal rage. He chooses to harden his heart and go down a path and kill his own brother prepared in every sense to tell Adam and Eve, Abel must have just left. Think about it. At some point, you're going to have to tell your parents. Someone's going to ask, where's Abel? Anybody seen him? Cain is fully ready to commit the absolute fullest extent of a murder, carry out the the conspiracy, kill his brother, and lie to his parents. But as we have seen, each and every step of the way, as God begins to uh, confront Cain, uh, as we have spoken again uh, of our Lord's words in the New Testament, that there is absolutely nothing hidden that will not be revealed, whether it is in this age or in the age to come. That is what we must be mindful of in the hearing of this text. There is nothing, once again, there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Now, again, we spoke last week just briefly. Well, there's things that are not revealed today that I, that I have done or that I am doing, and I seem not to have them revealed. Sure, agreed. But that doesn't mean that they will not be revealed in the age that is to come. So ultimately, whether it's this age or the age to come, nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. Nothing. Cain's just happened to come a lot sooner. I want to draw your attention to one word uh, of of the question. I I won't be able to develop it, but I I don't want to miss this detail in the text. Look with me, if you would, at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Where is he? And then he says, I don't know. I'm I'm my brother's keeper. And we'll look at this text in just a moment, but I want to draw your attention to the next few statements. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Again, I don't have time to develop all of the pieces here, but I I hope you gain the big picture of what's being said. In other words, there's a word here, not only against the perpetrator. Cain will get plenty of that. But there's also a word here to the victim of the crime. You see, he says, that, uh, look, at, look at the language. The voice of your brother's blood is crying. But you see, it's crying unto me. Abel is not voiceless. Not only does the blood of the victim have a voice, but there is someone there to whom it cries out. You see, again, it pairs 
with what is done in time will be revealed. If you're a victim, if you've been a victim, to others who are outside of this assembly who right now are being victimized, here we have solid ground to say your cries are being heard. It cries out. You may think you're alone, and you think that your voice is not being heard. It is being heard. We see it here in the text. His blood cries out. Those victim cries cry out to me. It will be avenged. It's not just the perpetrator who gets caught. And we emphasize that a lot. Like, you're going to get, this will get caught, this will get caught. But so also will the victim be freed. It doesn't go into thin air, the cries of the oppressed or the victim, the one who is assaulted and injured by a parent or a loved one within the family ranks, one of his priests or nuns, minister. The victim's cry is heard. Vengeance will be by the Lord. So also he says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out for me. Now, uh, notice the intensification of the sin. So we know of the hardness of Cain's heart. We know what's taking place, but notice the intensification altogether of the heart of mankind as we see it through the lens of Cain's response. Look at verse 9 and 10 now, piece by piece. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. And am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Notice how the response of Cain's reveals an absolute lack of regard for not only his own sinful behavior. Look, look, look at his snarky, snarky little self. Where's your brother? I don't know. Am I his keeper? Again, a total disregard for his own sinful behavior and the culpability that he has in the murder of his own brother. I don't care. Where is he? I don't know. What have you done? What do I care? And if we compare Cain's response, as I'm saying to you, what we're witnessing here through the life of Cain and then into the intensification of the event with Cain and Abel, if we compare Cain's response when confronted with that of Adam and Eve's response when they were confronted but just a chapter ago, we see a very dark picture in the development of mankind. Look just back over in verse 3, and I'll show you what I mean by that. Look at, in, 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 and I know that the, it's only one chapter, but there's many years lived between uh, these two events. But look again at just how quickly the, the Bible is testifying to us how quickly men fall away from God and just how dark it can be. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. This is God interrogating Adam and Eve. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, this is like, Cain, where is your brother? The, the man said, well, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. But notice this last little piece. And I ate. Then to the Lord God said to the, uh, to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me. But notice this little piece. And I ate. You see, Adam and Eve both pivot and blame shift 
You know, it's one of those moments where everyone raises their hand as fast as they can to the other person. Pivot and blame shift. It wasn't me. I mean, I mean, I mean but I guess it kind of was. Right? Due to their own embarrassment, they pivot and they blame, but then they acknowledge. It, it's just, it's not that I, I didn't do it. It's just that that person kind of made me do it. Do you, you know what I mean? It's a, so it's not full culpability. Like, yes, I have sinned. It's, I, I have, but it's kind of someone else's fault. But yeah, I, I have. Now, 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 compare that to Cain. Look over to Cain's response. Again, just one chapter later, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Hey, by the way, am I his keeper? You see, Cain has no such embarrassment. No sense of shame about what he's done. He's not the least bit sorrowful for what he did. Adam didn't say, I, I didn't eat. Did you eat of the tree? No. He said, well, well, yeah, but still. Cain just flat out denies it. I don't know. I didn't have anything to do with it. Furthermore, why is it my problem? So again, he doubles down on the crime. And then he mocks the Lord. Am I supposed to babysit him? Now, the mocking nature uh, will be drawn out through the terminology of the text. Look, notice verse 2 of the same chapter. No, notice how, where we get the language of keeping. Verse 2. And again, this is how we're introduced to Abel. And then, and then that really just puts the snarkiness on Cain's comment all the more. It, how, how he wasn't just, you know, I know he suffered worse, but how he wasn't just immediately smacked. You know? Just a good smack across the face or something. Right? It's worse than that when he gets to the end. But just the snarkiness. Look at the language. Verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. That, that's how Abel was known. The brother. Now, now, this is what we know of Abel. He was a keeper of the sheep. He was a husband of the sheep. Look at Cain's remark then. What am I? His keeper. You see, Cain mockingly says back to God, am I the great keeper of the keeper? In other words, my brother's always been inadequate. The answer to the question, by the way, and you may have guessed it or may you have deliberated on it and thought about it or had in conversation, that this question that confronts each of us are, am I my brother's keeper? Not snarkiness, but in sincerity. What is my obligation to my brother? The answer to that is yes and no. As often is in tricky matters, it's always yes and no. It's the, the details are where it's fleshed out. A lot of thought must be given, but the answer is yes, you are. And the answer is no, you're not. It is shared responsibility. Again, what is my obligation to my neighbor, to my brother? Of course, Cain would have none of it. But the truth of the matter is we must assist our brothers, our sisters. Am I their keeper, a husbandry, a fellow citizens? The answer is yes, I must assist in times of trouble, make provisions for. 
and encouragement unto them for life and peace. This is the summary of the law we learn in the New Testament. Love thy neighbor as thyself. But the antagonistic Cain will have none of it. Why is Abel's problem ever really my problem? So I guess the question in one sense is, am I my brother's keeper? The gospel says yes. So also even the law says yes. We just said it in the Heidelberg Catechism earlier this morning. That what is the law of God? Do you see the entire portion given over to thou shalt not steal? Why not? Because it's injurious to your brother is one simple way. Why not? That's why it can be summarized after stealing, adulterating, um, um, idolatries of other kinds, covetousness. It can be summarized in actively loving your neighbor instead of doing that which brings him harm. Or we could summarize it this way, love thy neighbor as thyself. Am I his keeper in any which way whatsoever as I interact with my neighbor? Should it matter to me whatsoever condition in a state he finds himself in? And the answer is yes, it should. We are taught that here in this text between Cain and Abel. However, we are not to be so intrusive as to feel charged of the Lord to keep an eye on one another as though spying and performing the duties of a tattletale. We are to seek one another's good in matters of faith and prudence. Another piece before we move on about this text, spiritually speaking to each of us as we glean the riches from this text, is that when God points out our sin, we have but one response that is appropriate. Humble repentance, confession of guilt, and a request for forgiveness. This is our duty before the Lord. When our sin is pointed out through the preaching of the word or for the faithful hand or voice of a brother or sister who is near to us being our keeper, what is our response? It can only be one. We must humble ourselves, confess our guilt, and request the Lord's forgiveness. Cain does none of these. He doubles down. And because he so doubled down, notice the intensification, not just of sin in Cain, but also the intensification of God's curse upon him. And this is an intensification from chapter 3. But notice in verse 11 and 12 as we walk through the text. And now, so, so I, I'm hearing the voice of the victim. I hear it cry out to me. It does not go unheard. And now, you, Cain, it's, it, it, it's time for it to come home to roost. You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. First, notice the nature of the curse that belongs to Cain. It is directly connected to his industry as a worker of the ground. It's a direct reference to the life that he is used to living. 
You remember, what do we know of Cain in industry and skill and in blessing and in reception? We know him to be a worker of the field. What did he bring at sacrifice? Fruit from those labors. This is being taken away from him. The life that he has cultivated, the skills that he has, the way that a farmer knows his field, the intimacy of the land, to knowing when to work it, when not to work it, when to switch the fields in which you're growing in, in which field, how the rains work, the seasonal movement of the land. This is now removed from him. He forfeited his very own blessing. He experienced a, 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 a kind of a synergy of relationship with the land. It yielded to him a fruitfulness therein. And it will no longer do it. The relationship is broke. Not just altered, but it is really broken. Why? And the reasoning is given in the text. Why, why is this, the land going to be uh, harsh toward Cain now? Well, notice in verse 11, you are cursed from it. It's you that's the problem. What, what, what is the nature of our relationship between me and the land that I loved and worked so long? Well, it opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. And it wasn't that he fell in a field. It was from your hand that fell him. You gave the earth death. And it will no longer yield to you life. Now again, consider as the narrative is developing, because it just gets worse from here for a portion of time. Notice the intensification of what God said to Adam versus what he said to, uh, uh, to Cain. Remember, if you look at the curse that came to Adam and Eve, do you remember what it said specifically? Cursed is the ground, Adam. But do you remember what will happen? Look at the text with me just uh, briefly. Um, if you look over in chapter 3, verse 17, and he said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. The ground is shouldering a huge load. And, it's, and it's gonna, you're going to struggle between you and the earth. Indeed, you'll subdue it, but, uh, um, uh, but not so easily. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. It's going to be a sweaty affair. But it will still yield. You'll still see the fruits of your labor. Because cursed is the ground in this experience. But notice how it's escalated here in chapter 4. Notice what he curses in verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground. This is a major development in the story of redemption. Cain now, the son of Adam and Eve, is cursed. Not just the elements around him, the community within which he worked. It is he himself. And this now, in the major shift of the story of Scripture, is the beginning of an ungodly offspring that will challenge the godly offspring all the way to the cross and beyond. But notice how it's really uh, the second part of the curse which Cain feels the greatest burden for. Um, look at verse 12. So, so, so he's hearing the first, the, the, the first foot fall, as it were. Boom! You yourself are cursed. From the ground that you work so hard and so long and know so well, 
You are cursed. You, person, from this affair. It's opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Boom. First foot drops. Verse 12. This is your ongoing relationship. When you do work the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. In other words, um, you're going to have meager rations that spill out. Really brutal experience with the earth. But it's the second piece. Notice, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, to be careful, because if we look at the text, maybe right at first we just think he had a Bedouin-like existence from here on out. He just kind of wandered from tent city to tent city to tent city to tent city. But that's not exactly what's taking place in the text. Again, we see it twofold. How? Because look down in the text of verse 17. What is Cain doing in verse 17? But building a city. And he named that city after Enoch, his son. So again, he's not a Bedouin-like existence based on his being a wanderer and a fugitive on the earth. And also, he was said that you will still, notice the text in verse 12, when you work the ground. So he will still have to work the ground. But man, it will be like living in a drought. Very meager rations for him and his family. There will be great consequences for the family that is developed because of it. Rather, Cain's sense of being a fugitive and a wanderer most importantly, is that he is a fugitive and a wanderer from the family as a society of faith. He is a wanderer and a fugitive from the family as a society of faith. When God says to Cain, you are going to be a fugitive and a wanderer, He's excommunicating Cain from the family unit. The place of rightful worship, the place of liturgy, the place of discipline, the place of peace, the place of faith. Cain is now out. He is clanless. And by this curse, he remains godless. This is who he is. Now, he knows this to be true, and let me show you how in the text in our last few moments together. Cain knows the heavy hand that's on him, and he knows that the greater burden of his punishment is the expulsion from the community of faith. He knows it. Now, remember, he's lived within it. At a consensus morality, he's been able to survive. You know, it's a sense of maybe belonging within the church and never having gone through excommunication because you're below the radar. Nothing overt, nothing public, nothing controversial. You coexist, you cohabitate, you live well within the community by personality trait, by constitution, by natural giftedness, but not necessarily by faith. This is how Cain has lived, a consensus morality. And he knows that's how he's lived. And it's all come unraveled now when he brought the sacrifice by hypocrisy. The rug's being pulled out from underneath him. The whole gig is up. 
Notice the burden he bears because of his response, or in his response. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, and he recounts what's happened to him. You have driven me today away from the ground. Strike one. The fruitful relations, the harvest. And notice how he, how, he, how he frames the issue of being a fugitive and a wanderer. From your face I shall be hidden. And then how are we to interpret that? How are we to understand that by, by his clarity that he provides? Opposite of abiding in the presence of your face is being a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. You know what happens to clanless individuals who go outside the provisions of the faithful community? Someone will find me and I will be killed. Cain's greatest concern is his being cast out from the protection and provisions experienced through the believing society. The provision that he has hid well and succeeded through the ranks of for decades is now gone. God has been kind to the family of faith. The place and the presence where his name abides with Adam and Eve and their family. Cain has shared in its blessings. Whether they are direct to him or they are accidental to the community that he belongs to, it belongs to them and thereby to Cain as he associates. He knows that God is kind to the believing unit. And now he has found, you have driven me away from your face. I shall be hidden. The result of that and the, lose, the losing of those provisions, someone will find me and kill me. I will be hidden from your sight. I will be all alone. He knows the safety of belonging to the people of God, at least externally. One author comments, he faces a spiritual punishment, not just a physical one. He is cast out through excommunication from the second paradise, as it were, namely from the temple and the church of God. Cain knows this to be the heaviest hand of his curse. And yet, if we look at the man Cain, we still see nothing but darkness. Absolutely zero repentance. What is our duty when sin is revealed? But it's too late for Cain. Our duty is to repent, admit guilt, and seek forgiveness. But notice what happens to Cain, even in his darkest moment, knowing that he is now all alone, outside the presence and provisions of God, in any kind of provisional and kind way. He simply has a concern, as he always has, for the life in the here and now. Do you see that? That's all he still cares about. What happens to me today? Look at how he responds. 
in verse 14. Again, he says, behold, you have driven me today from the ground. I get that. All right, that's one thing. But from your face I shall be hidden. I'm going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, what, what, is his, what is his concern? Again, what is his concern at this point? From your face I shall be hidden. The provisions of the believing community. I'm without the bounds of that community. You've driven me from your face and the attendant blessings that go with it. He just simply says, whoever finds me is going to kill me. Again, Cain's greatest concern is about revenge. Maybe an unknown relative at this point. Someone yet on the scene of history. But yet Cain is marking out, outside the believing community, in its provisions of your face that shine upon it, I will be sought. I will be killed for vengeance upon Abel. What do we learn here at the end in the summary of Cain and his response? What do we learn about ourselves in the thought of Cain's response? But that the greatest concern of the text, thereby the greatest concern we ought to have in hearing it, is about the life that is to come. Cain is filled with concern about now. I'll bring the sacrifice and get through it. I'll belong to the community of faith simply by consensus morality. I'll stay below the radar. And then I find out I got caught and what's my first response? My greatest concern is what's going to happen to me tomorrow. And in contrast, what a reversal. We have Abel in the New Testament testimony of Abel. What an interesting piece, right, in the text. So, so, so Cain at the end goes on to live. We have no record of what actually happened to him in that curse. We'll look at it next week. But we have no, no record that somebody uh, uh, jumped up upon him and killed him. Uh, that, that's his concern. Interesting. Cain continues to live. And Abel has died. But you see, from God's vantage point, though he has died, that is Abel, yet he lives. And though Cain has not yet died and continues to live, he is dead. You see, the significance of the text is where does your faith reside? If you died today, would you go on to live? Or are you alive today, though you are really just dead and estranged from God? Let's pray.